Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Geography, a uh, channel on the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman, I'm your host today. Today we're talking with uh, Brian Tochterman, author of a very nice book called The Dying City, Post-War New York, and The Ideology of Fear. This book was put out last year, 2017, with the University of North Carolina Press in a series entitled Studies in United States Culture. Um, and Brian comes to us today from uh, Northland College in Wisconsin. Uh, how are you, Brian? How's everything over there? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Uh, happy to talk about my book and, and to answer any questions that you have on it. Of course. So, um, thanks for thanks for making the time. Um, well, the Dying City is um, it's an intellectual and cultural history of uh, one particular set of ideas that ends up establishing a pretty compelling. Through line, um, through close to a, well, a half century of, of thought in and about New York City. Um, the, the, the book starts around 1947, goes up to about 1985. In the, the epilogue, um, Tochterman points us towards the contemporary moment, and we hear a number of different voices, um, literary voices, voices from the world of planning theory and planning practice, um, other sorts of uh, intellectuals, humanistic and social scientific critics of urban life, and a couple very compelling chapters on uh, film and television and other forms of artistic representation. Um, all of these voices taking up the question of uh, what it might mean to say that a city is dying or might be about to die or has perhaps already died. We're just living amid its its ruins. Um, it's an intellectual history of urbanism, a uh, very, uh, very nice analysis. It folds over eight chapters, um, taking up what the author calls um, a set of spatial narratives, taking questions of uh, urban representation seriously and asking uh, sort of a second order of analysis um, how representations uh, matter in politics, in culture, in everyday life. How representations endure and, mo- and, and, and morph over time. Um, before we get into the substance of the of the chapters, um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about yourself, um, where you have come from, uh, where you've been, uh, geographically, intellectually, institutionally, and at some basic level, how you came to write this particular book. Great, thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, this this book is a product, I would argue, of sort of personal and and scholarly interests. Uh, so my background, I am a Midwesterner by birth. I actually grew up in Wisconsin, um, Green Bay, Wisconsin, to be exact. And I, after college, I wanted to work in in the film industry, and I actually moved to New York because of that. Um, I aspired, I guess, to work in film. That 
that career path for whatever reasons didn't pan out. And I found myself working in the city of New York, uh, working for the parks department in New York, actually. And uh, I, I had a, a pretty spectacular job that uh, involved having an office in Central Park, but also driving around the city and sort of getting to know the city all around uh, the, the five boroughs there. And in that sense, I really got to understand the geography and, and spaces of New York in ways that not even um, people who live there their whole lives uh, sort of get to see. Uh, but when I would return to um, my hometown or visit my parents, uh, I'd often get questions about sort of danger and uh, sort of fear about New York City. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s, at a time when, as New York still is, one of the safest cities in, in the country, and certainly one of the largest and safest cities in the country. Uh, so I think at that point, I really, that, that sort of planted a seed in my brain about, well, where do, what is the origin of this, this image of the city? And certainly I had a, I probably carried those fears myself uh, prior to ever visiting New York. You know, that was my uh, probably my understanding of the city as this kind of uh, uh, exciting and alluring place, but also this place filled with crime and danger and uh, and those sorts of problems. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, and um, I, I, via my work, I, I got interested in planning and geography, so I um, went to a master's program in those in, in urban planning, and I guess my aspiration had always been to work in sort of the history and theory of planning and development, and after I um, finished that degree, I moved on and, and decided to pursue a path in urban history um, at the University of Minnesota. Eventually, I got drawn back into New York via my research, and I really wanted to focus on New York in this era of urban renewal and demographic change and all these other sort of forces that are acting on the city in the post-war era that I initially did not plan on studying when I, uh, when I applied to graduate school or to my doctorate degree, but ultimately ended up studying. So... Um, in that sense, this is really a project that where a lot of my sort of uh, personal path and a lot of my personal interests and scholarly interests intersect in that respect. Um, and ultimately, uh, I mean, from film to literature to um, the intellectual history and, and planning theory, um, all of that has admittedly been an interest of mine and uh, certainly a significant reason why it ends up as the, the key sources in this text. Fantastic. Um, well, the book is organized chronologically. Um, the first, uh, it's really a, a set of four pairs of chapters. Um, the first pair of chapters, um, bringing a couple of uh, literary voices together, you set up a pretty strong... Um, conceptual contrast uh, between what you call cosmopolis, on the one hand, it's more sort of optimistic vision of the city's possibilities, and on the other hand, necropolis, the city of death. And you 
exemplify these concepts through two particular authors, the uh, essayist E.B. White and, on the other hand, uh, the figure of Mickey Spillane. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about what these concepts mean um, on, on the most basic level and then, in a sense, how they endure, how they lend a certain kind of structure to discourse on New York over the next half century or so. Yes, of course. Coming out of World War II, uh, New York um, was at, I would argue, a turning point. It's, you know, coming out of depression, coming out of war, and uh, entering this atomic age uh, where, um, despite the fact that the U.S. had the monopoly on the bomb at that time, it was only a matter of, uh, of, of a couple of years before the U.S. itself would no longer possess that monopoly, and large, dense cities uh, like New York would be uh, prime targets for uh, that new way of waging war and uh, mass destruction. So E.B. White, um, recognizing the critical importance of New York, um, wrote what I would call a kind of foundational document on the place of New York City in the post-war era, and it's it's very brief. It was in, published in Holiday Magazine, but is now available in the standalone book. It has been for some time called Here is New York, where he lays out a vision of New York um, that is historically grounded and, and forward-thinking. And it's grounded in, in this image of the city as this entry point for immigrants and migrants, um, for uh, the over two over a century and a half that New York up to that point had existed, or I guess several centuries, I should say, uh, going back to New Amsterdam. Sure. But White argued that uh, that it was that it was the migrant and the, and not necessarily the native New Yorker or the commuter uh, who gave New York City this special vibrancy, this special life, and. And that's really the sort of uh, origin of my conception of cosmopolis, um, sort of a symbol of a, a term that's that's I guess is used in planning theory to describe uh, kind of this idyllic place of uh, where difference is, is celebrated and diversity is celebrated and and sort of um, it's really only in large cities where that is uh, sort of seen as possible. So. For White, it was it was that image of this vibrant uh, city uh, made up of, that continues to attract migrants and immigrants, um, despite the forthcoming migrations out of the city to the suburbs or the threats to the city um, by uh, warfare or annihilation. It was important for White that that migration into the city uh, continued and uh, sort of that that image of cosmopolis uh, he sought to sort of deploy to to ensure the city's sustainability going forward and i would argue that i mean that is uh, an image that endures but throughout the period that i'm talking about it it faces uh, significant challenges and i and i believe it gets drowned out in in many in many ways so 
that is a that is a work of nonfiction. That is a work uh, that is that analyzes New York in its contemporary state. Um, and I believe it was uh, appropriate representation of the city at that time. In the meantime, there are sort of fictional representations that are going to resonate later on, and that's where I, where Mickey Spillane comes in. Uh, Mickey Spillane um, is a kind of transformative pulp writer, uh, following in the footsteps of people like or authors like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, but with a, a variety of twists on on the private detective of and it protagonist of the of pulp fiction um his his private detective is a is a sort of war veteran um and one who in the pages of his books operates not not as a private detective for hire but rather as a, a public vigilante who um seeks vengeance upon various uh transgressions by uh the new yorkers who populate the book so these books, and in particular six novellas published between 1947 and 1952, are some of the most significant bestsellers of that era. I mean, I think they all populated the top ten best-selling books of the of the 1950s or that era. Uh, so it was it was a, a narrative of a city that was in decline, in the throes of violence and decay. Uh, that reached a significant audience at that time. And it was, of course, a very sensationalist and uh, exaggerated version of the city. But as I suggest in my book, it was one that would resonate with a variety of commentators down the line. Um, ultimately, I've labeled that image of the city that emerges out of Spillane Necropolis, which is a term borrowed from uh Planning theorist Patrick Geddes and and his protege Lewis Mumford mm-hmm. to mean the city of the dead, um, but I think it's appropriate description of of the dying city that is present in Spillane and then later works. Mumford appears uh, here and there in the later uh, chapters, of course, a, a New York based mm-hmm. or New York adjacent figure for uh, much of his career, not not all of it. Um, that's that's fantastic. The, uh, the the contrast is very clear, and these this terminology of cosmopolis and necropolis um, uh, sort of orients the reader in, in diverse ways as the um, analysis moves ahead. Um, I wonder if we could look at the the next uh, pair of chapters, which uh, you indicate under the heading of cancer and death: uh, New York narratives in. Planning Theory, uh, 1953 to 1961. And one chapter apiece is de- devoted to um, arguably the most familiar uh, uh, figures in, in quite a number of uh, New, York, New York-centric histories of planning and urban redevelopment. Uh, Robert Moses, on the one hand, and uh, his sort of standard antithesis and antagonist, on the other hand, uh, Jane Jacobs. But... You come at these figures in um, a slightly different way. Um, I think you tap in to uh, sort of a, a newer and more critical understanding of Jacobs's uh, legacy. Um, I think a, a more complex understanding of some of her intellectual 
influences and commitments, um, also a more variegated understanding of her politics. Uh, you show, I think, compellingly some some fairly strong affiliations between her uh, her thinking and some strains in conservative thought, uh, conservative political thought, and otherwise. Um, so um, that's interesting on its own merits. Uh, your approach to Moses is also quite interesting. Uh, we know quite a bit about Moses's built work. We know about his signatures on the landscape um, in New York City and throughout the New York metropolitan region. But what you do that's really compelling here is you look at quite a number of Moses's own writings. You point out that the 1950s are a very particular moment in the uh, landscape of media, a very particular age in the evolution of the American magazine, sort of an age of criticism. Uh, the uh, the book review has a certain kind of standing, a certain kind of purchase in public life. And so you look um, at quite a number of, I think, undercovered, under-analyzed writings by Moses himself. So I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on um, how your analysis differs from the sort of existing existing stories we have of Moses, Jacobs, and uh, Moses V. Jacobs. First off, let me say thank you for your appreciation of uh, of my reading of these two figures because it is, I mean, it is kind of an old saw when it comes to New York history in this period and um, something that I recognized uh, going into it. But I felt that um, within the context of my arguments, uh, these two figures play a critical role. Um, I mean, just to talk about talk about them in concert, they are both they're both thinkers and theorists that are wrestling with these categories of cosmopolis versus necropolis, but they're using their their visions are in contrast and their ends are in contrast, or they're sort of the their means are in contrast as well, because they both see the city as dying, but they strive to to sort of create or shape this cosmopolitan or this image of Cosmopolis or this image of a new New York in the 1950s and 1960s. With Moses, um, what's interesting about Moses from my respect is, is that like Mickey Spillane, he aspired, or he, and, and this is evident in some of his writings, he aspired to be a, a kind of pulp novelist and his, uh, um, I, I believe he actually wrote a, a pulp novel. I don't know if I don't think it was ever published, but uh, it's uh, somewhere in his files um, and somewhere in his background. But he was a prolific writer, and he's a very skilled writer when it comes to um, sort of aggressive argumentation. And he used um, the magazine, which is going through this uh, this sort of formative period in the 1950s and the age of criticism. He used that, the magazine article, to to make the case for his urban renewal program. And he did that by deploying tropes from Necropolis, uh, particularly this metaphor of cancer, a cancer that required his skilled municipal surgeons and and sort of bureaucratic modernism to to remove that cancer. It also required a kind of wholesale 
cancer or removal of that cancer in this uh, sort of large scale municipal surgery. And so on the one hand, and, and other scholars have, have examined this, he has a very pictorial representation of decay and decline that he uses to make the case for to um, municipal bureaucrats and others for uh, the need for urban renewal. But for the public at large, he uses um, his sort of skill at writing and descriptions of the city as declining as a, and as cancerous in order to um, get public uh, support for his urban renewal program. Jacobs, on the other hand, um, as her most famous work illustrates, uh, similarly deployed necropolis uh, to her own ends. I mean, she talked about the death and life of great American cities, as the title says. So um, the image of death wrought by Moses's projects and modernism um, is very powerful in this sort of changing the perspective, public perspective on modernism and urban renewal. Um, and that sort of lively side, that, that vision of cosmopolis that she uses um, based on her own neighborhood in, in West Village, New York City, um, r- resonates um, uh, through today, of course. Jacobs is continually celebrated as this kind of uh, presenting this ideal, idyllic image of community, this idyllic image of, of how a city should work. Um, the problem with that, as I try to highlight, is that um, it has a contingency for planning and, and for development because um, it's, this idea is picked up, this idea of the sort of living city, this organic city, uh, is picked up by conservative commentators as a, an argument that, well, you know, that neighborhoods can can do just fine on their own if we let them be. Uh, and that becomes a kind of uh, barrier to more proactive social policy that really could get at the heart of what planning policy should tackle, like uh, urban poverty, um, segregation, racial discrimination. Um, it's this very sort of... Um, this this sort of bottom-up lack of regulation image of how urban development happens is seized on by other commentators. The other issue with Jacobs is that um, she is dependent on presenting this, her, her argument is dependent on presenting this image of the city as this kind of scary place um, where, where citizens have the right to fear uh, because Modern, modernism has created these spaces that uh, are dangerous. They don't have eyes on the street. They don't have this kind of self-policing mechanism that the neighborhoods that she loves and uh, talks about possess. So, um, and it's actually a figure like Lewis Mumford who picks up on that and says, yeah, you know, Jacobs is right. And she has a reason to fear <laughs> these cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes an argument that is uh, taken up by others and sort of becomes a kind of echo going forward. Yeah, the eyes on the street uh, uh, 
figure or, or metaphor um, so often cited, and you put a, a pretty distinctive spin on it, uh, much more you know, sort of surveillant understanding of, of what that what that notion is actually putting putting forth. Um, and it, it yeah, you, you you spin the explicit or implicit politics of some of these ideas in a uh, very very different way, very surprising way. Um, uh, in the next uh, pair of chapters, um, you are dealing with um, what you just uh, you you characterize as intellectuals in Necropolis. Um, chapter five deals with um, collection of intellectuals. Uh, a lot of the uh, main figures that intellectual historians tend to have in mind when they invoke the New York intellectuals, um, capital I, um, those of what you describe as the old left. Um, and uh, figures like Irving Howe, Daniel Bell, um, Lionel Abel, and others. Um, you convene these figures um, through one particular issue of the journal Dissent. Uh, Dissent put out an issue in 1961, which you point out was its its best-selling issue yet on the theme of New York City. Um, and I wonder if you could uh, think through one or two of these figures, um, what sorts of claims they're making about the city and the possibility of its death, and um, how this should, how, how the New York intellectuals Comments on New York itself should, um, I suppose, reorient how we think about their politics in a certain sense. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. So um, a lot of a lot of what I write about in, in that chapter is a comparison between. Um, that is found in in the specific article in the summer of 1960. Or, sorry, the specific issue of dissent from summer 1961, um, in which uh, the critics and commentators fall along. I would argue, sort of two um, two uh, guard, if you what should be called the old guard and the and the vanguard. Um, with respect to their vision of New York City, um, the old leaders uh, that I highlight, the old left and the, the old guard of the New York intellectuals that I talk about, as you mentioned, are Irving Howe, um, Daniel Bell is another key figure there, and, and a little bit lesser-known intellectual um, named Lyle Abel, who... Uh, it's one I would argue the uh, most vicious Jeremy had uh, about Mark in in that period, uh, especially at the beginning of the 1960s. It was until the late 1960s where you have more overt attacks on from um, local air. Um, but what's interesting about the New York intellectuals at this time is they really by the 1960s are taking a nostalgic view about the city that says that the height of the city uh, is not in its future, but um, in its past and it's in its past when, when they were sort of more um, sort of popular figures in 
the New York intellectual milieu. So the typical uh, someone like Irving Howe sees um, the 1930s, the 1940s as as the pinnacle of the city. It was this place where um, where intellectualism and uh, sort of public intellectualism mattered, where they were taken seriously, and and where they had kind of what what uh, Frederick Jameson calls uh, universal access. Uh, um, they could move through the Gren- through Greenwich Village, which was their sort of uh, home base, um, up through the city and into Harlem and and the area and sort of uh, African American enclaves and and working class enclaves throughout the city. Um, they felt more comfortable in that milieu. By the 1960s, um, they see their sort of relevance fading, at least people like Hal. And I think that's what inspires him to write this uh, remembrance of, of New York in the 1930s as a kind of uh, popular memory of, of its glory days. Abel's piece, um, his Jeremy against... Uh, New York in the 1960s, which is not um, does not refrain from sort of making overt criticisms of the de- demographic shifts that are occurring in the city at that time, including uh, rising black migration and the Puerto Rican migration to the city in the 1950s and 1960s. His his piece is a sort of outright attack on the city. And is kind of his breakaway from not just the city itself, but from that old left liberalism. He'd actually um, go on and follow a path of sort of the emergent new right at that time and would move from the pages of dissent to the pages of the National Review, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you have a... a a burgeoning group of new left um, thinkers, um, sort of in the spirit of Jacobs, uh, but writers like Michael Harrington, Dan Wakefield, um, all of them who, as the issue suggests, I mean, since it recognizes that New York is in, in a kind of uh, state of crisis or emergent crisis, um, recognize that pro- recognize that there's problems with the city, but want to address those problems or work to address those problems. Whereas the old left is sort of saying goodbye and good riddance and sort of farewell to New York as they knew it. And many of them would leave the city at least for brief periods before coming back. So it's that's where the divide happens. It's those old left figures who, and, and this is... Um, I think a common issue with uh, development in our own time. You have sort of older figures, you have sort of long-standing citizens who think that um, a place's uh, past is the site of its of its best day, and that it's difficult to envision uh, a, a better future for that place. And that is the position that um, these nostalgic old left. Figures like Howe, Abel, and and um, also Daniel Ab- or Daniel Bell 
um, sort of uh, that's how that's how they see the city in the early 1960s. Whereas, sort of emergent leftist figures um, like Michael Harrington are ready to see the city and recognize the problems of the city, but also want to work through a political and sort of grassroots lens uh, to address those problems. You catch this group of intellectuals at a very interesting moment. I mean, it's, it's of course, the case that a number of them, you know, uh, began their lives as writers and as political actors somewhere on the left and then themselves moved to the right. Um, uh, but you provide a certain degree of complexity. There are various, uh, various varieties of left, various varieties of right here, and you're catching a number of these figures at this really interesting uh, transitional moment, the, 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 the early 60s. I, th- I think you described Bell himself as the, as the transitional figure at some point, but it is pr- profoundly a moment of, of transition. Um, and uh, so you, you, I think you, you dig out these sort of untoward alliances between left and right, um, and I think um, you can you can clarify this, but I think you are presenting some of these uh, old left, once left voices in Chapter Five as sort of a preface to the more explicitly right leaning voices that that come to the fore in Chapter Six, the the the, the neoconservatives coming around ideas of the city's um, uh, ungovernability, heavily in quotation marks. Um, I wonder if we could turn to a few of those voices in the ensuing chapter. What does ungovernability mean? Who coins this term? What uh, problems or perceived problems give rise to it? And um, is it a concept that is specific to New York City? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I, I, first off, let me say that uh, I think you captured um, the, the the summary of chapter five uh, in uh, sort of excellent terms and and as you mentioned Daniel Bell I see as a key figure in this sort of transition political transition that uh, New York into several New York intellectuals follow at this time from sort of a anti-Stalinism um, or sort of Trotsky socialism. Trotskyist socialism to a kind of neoliberalism. Some go to neoconservatives. Some go to new right camps. And uh, Daniel Bell, I just in in defense, since I lumped him with the nostalgic uh, figures of the uh, like Howe and Abel, he actually offers a more pragmatic uh, understanding of the city in that dissent piece. I agree. Or issue. So, um, but but it is sort of a preface for his own sort of ideological change, even though he resists ideology and argues for pragmatism. Um, the term ungovernability actually comes from another, or the ungovernable city actually comes from another um, key figure, key intellectual that is, is drifting right at this, at this time. Uh, and it's a sociologist, uh, Nathan Glazer, who, and a famous book with uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan called Beyond the Melting Pot. He uh, writes a piece in the mid-early 1960s about New York City, published, I believe, I want to say in commentary, called The Ungovernable City, um, that talks about um, the 
sort of a growing public sector and municipal um, uh, burden uh, in the 1960s. And um, it actually uh, becomes a kind of label attached to various mayoral uh, administrations in the 1960s and 1970s, most notably uh, that of John Lindsay, um, who faces a variety of strikes from sanitation to trans- transportation um, in the 1960s. But it's figures like Glazer and figures like um, Irving Kristol and other um, new neoconservative commentators that are going to seize on the arguments of sort of new left intellectuals um, and other sort of representations of the city to sort of counteract any attempt to um, expand the welfare state or expand um, municipal services to aid people in need. So in Chapter 6, I write a lot about Michael Harrington's uh, famous study of poverty called The Other America, which is about a broader national story, but also focuses heavily on New York City um, based on his work in with the Catholic worker um, in places like the Bowery, uh, which is New York's famous uh, Skid Row, downtown New York's famous Skid Row, and in Harlem, and where he's talking about um, a kind of persistence of poverty in these neighborhoods that something like urban renewal has not addressed and is thus, um, it's, and thus argues that only a sort of reformulated public policy agenda can address those, um, can address that problem. However, it's people like Glazer, it's, uh, or Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, and other sort of new right and neoconservative commentators who seize on the kind of tropes in Harrington's writing to, to, and also some certain phrasing in Harrington's writing to condemn, um, the, the victims of those poverty to a life of poverty. So some key phrases like the, the culture of poverty, um, which emerges from new left critiques and studies of poverty, um, like Harrington's, becomes ascribed to um, New York's poor and, and New York's racial minorities as a way to say it's, it's futile to address these concerns because uh, the culture is so deep and thus um, it's pathological. So another phrase is the tangle of patholo- pathology. That's that's Michael, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's term for um, uh, the the situation in places like Harlem um, from from Moynihan's famous memo on the black family in the in the 1960s. So that's where. That's where this uh, transition sort of continues from from sort of leftist critiques, but also sort of reporting on the ungovernability of New York that 
sort of uh, that becomes the narrative that is seized by um, new right and neoconservative commentators in the 1960s. Yeah, and I think I think very interestingly here, I mean the the concept of pathology, of course, coming from a, a medical discourse, and in, in in a broader sense, you make the case that. Uh, I, I suppose if, if we had been in the 50s or the age of criticism, uh, the 60s in a sense are this sort of age of social science. And there's this new purchase, a new visibility of social science in public through uh, figures like David Reisman, uh, C. Wright Mills, Kenneth Clark, Glazer and Moynihan themselves, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, and and others. So there's this really, uh, really strong sense that the the... There's the there's a sense there 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 is the the attempt to make these claims in not only a polemical register but putting a certain kind of scientific precision behind them is is that right? Yes, uh, yeah. I mean it. It. I mean that's. I mean it. That's something that I would argue comes from Moses. I mean it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, he's talking about the ailment of the city and, and sort of the city is dying because it has cancer. Um, at the cellular level, I mean, it, um, it's when it, when it becomes sort of taken up by uh, other commentators, it, it's the result of this kind of pathology that is, is, is seen as inherent in those cells. I mean, meaning neighborhoods and individuals uh, who populate those neighborhoods. So, I mean, yes, it's it. What is striking, and hence the title of the book, is is this kind of uh, consistency across media, across commentators um, who see the city as this organism and who see it as dying and 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 ailing. It's 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 really a a kind of uh, striking personification of of, of a city. <laughs> and then you have a figure like... Uh, uh, that is prevalent in this writing. Yeah, yeah. then you have a figure like... Uh, sorry. No, sorry. Um, uh, Edward Banfield, uh, explicitly conservative political scientist, writing towards the end of the 60s, mm-hmm. early 70s, um, who uh, sort of breaks it wide open, uh, saying that not only is... Uh, you know, uh, not only are these pathologies uncurable... Action is impossible. Even you know, even attaining really precise knowledge about the city as a as a social scientific problem is itself in question. Uh, Banfield, James Q. Wilson, some of these figures, you know, that you, you'll you'll read 200 pages of their stuff. This very uh, you know precise, uh, all the trappings of you know empirical social science, and then the last two paragraphs of the book. You know, we know nothing. We can do nothing. We must do nothing. Um, so the, the way we get from this sort of scientific impulse to this sort of polemic, uh, p- political polemic um, is fairly interesting at this point in time, I think. Yeah, and and I mean, from a from a planning and um, sort of a contemporary lens, I, I, that is, it's an incredibly powerful narrative of the city because. Um, when you look at something like public housing or other sort of social policies that have had its problems in the past, um, you know, it's, it's arguments like culture of poverty and pathology that prevent us from, uh, you know, sort of 
taking what we learned from that policy and sort of uh, or those policies and sort of perfecting those policies rather than, I mean, instead we get sort of arguments that, well, nothing can be done. It's just a, it's a futile effort to even try to, to address those problems. And that, um, in many respects is the essence of a lot of our political discourse today. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I feel comfortable drawing those lines anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we might now turn to the uh, last pair of chapters. Uh, you have granted them the title Detour to Fun City, Cultural Responses to the Death of New York, uh, 1967 to 1985. Uh, quite a bit of attention to uh, film television, other uh, sort of vi- uh, vi- visual and dramatic representations of the city from the mid to late 60s going forward. You point out that in 1966, under uh, Lindsay, there's a pretty significant new um, policy shift with the city uh, office of film and TV production, um, such that quite a number of movies are being made in New York and about New York from that moment going forward. Um, By the 70s, uh, the necropolitan image is uh, pretty undeniable in a lot of these, uh, Taxi Driver, Canonically, um, and other such films, Death Wish with Charles Bronson. I think there there are five of them, in fact, not all of them set in New York. Um, I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about this moment. Uh, What new sorts of images are coming forth on screen during this period into the 70s, and um, uh, how do they how do they play out? Yes, of course. So, yeah, there's a variety of policy and structural changes that are occurring in film in, in the late 1960s um, that uh, result in a kind of image of, of New York in as as in many respects, as others have termed it, Fear City uh, in the 1970s. So on the one hand, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a push by Mayor John Lindsay to incentivize film production in New York City um, during the 1960s. Uh, uh, you can see a kind of quali- uh, a qualitative difference between films produced on Hollywood sound stages but set in New York it, in the 50s and 60s, and those films later on that are shot in, in on the streets of the city. Um, so he incentivizes film in the city. So what he hopes is is going to market what his his vision of the city, which is a kind of cosmopolis vision of the city. He calls fun city that's exciting, alluring, and uh, filled with harmless thrills. At the same time, in Hollywood, you have this uh, change in um, sort of how films are made. You have this emergent period of bold experimentation. You have this new rating system that's going to allow for more graphic uh, depictions of sex, more realistic language, um, and just this new... Uh, sort of young filmmaking style that is going to push the boundaries of, of film as art. 
So those things come together in New York um, in the late 1960s and 1970s. And the films start taking up these this image of the city that prior to that has been in these niche journals like Descent or in in these uh, in in books like The Other America or in other sort of special investigative series by um, local newspapers or high profile crime events like uh, the the murder of of Catherine Genovese in 1964, which uh, shocked the city. This was a, a random rape and murder that um, uh, really highlighted apathy in the city in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So film becomes the vehicle to sort of spread, to, to trans or sort of uh, broadcast this narrative of the dying city to a, a national audience in ways that um, a small-scale journal like Descent just could not do. Um, and that's the sort of next step um, in the sort of uh, evolution of this narrative of the dying city. So, so Death Wish, I would argue, is kind of the the film par excellence, um, or the the sort of a Necropolis film par excellence. But there are others that I talk about: um, Midnight Cowboy, The Out of Towners, Taxi Driver. All of these films sort of are engaging in these this these debates about not just New York City, but about um, the divide between city and suburb and um, sort of New York versus the Sun Belt and, and the West Coast, uh, all to sort of create a kind of basically the the antithesis of Lindsay's goal with that program. So what goes on on screen in Death Wish? Uh, Br- Bronson is living on the Upper West Side, I think. He's a, I think he's a professor of some sort, and um, someone close to him is killed, and he just shifts into full uh, vigilante mode. Um, And and then what? Well, he's actually an architect. Oh, that's right. um, Which is even... (laughs) And that that even makes it more pertinent to uh, this period. So he's an architect, and and he's designing these skyscrapers downtown, in downtown Manhattan. Um... Until his wife and daughter are the victim of a home invasion, a random home invasion, um, by three uh, sort of gang members, one played by Jeff Goldblum, um, who uh, sort of get their names off a, a supermarket delivery slip. Uh, it His wife ends up dead, and his daughter is in a coma from uh, the rape and the assault. Uh, and what uh, Bronson's character realizes is that or once he confronts the police, uh, the police admit that there's little chance of finding uh, the the perpetrators of, of this attack because in the city that's just the way it is, uh, they say. So it's, uh, it symbolizes that the city is, I mean, the, the, the police uh, are both overburdened, but they're also sort of, ineffective in their police strategy. In order to clear his head, his architectural firm sends um, Bronson's character, Paul Kersey, to 
Tucson, Arizona, where he's been hired to design a suburban subdivision for this very um, sort of uh, funny, um, I mean, not he's not a funny person, but he's just a kind of uh, contextually funny archetype of uh, a kind of good old boy um, who developer who loves guns and loves uh, talking about the problems of New York City. So it, it creates this contrast of of New York versus the Sun Belt, of city versus suburb, and sort of um, sort of uh, liberal gun laws versus uh, sort of uh, conceal carry uh, laws. So what happens in Tucson is not just the sort of transformative work on the su- suburban development, but uh, the developer takes Kersey to um, his gun club and treats him to some target practice and then sends him home with a with a with a gun as well. And that becomes his tool for uh, becoming a proactive vigilante, sort of undiscriminately or indiscriminately killing um, sort of small time criminals, muggers um, and other sorts of uh what would later be known as quality of life inconveniences um, in the streets of New York. So he's not out trying to capture his wife's killers. Rather, he's just doing doing the work that the police are supposed to be doing, and they're also he's also doing it in a way that is uh, sort of supersedes due process, not unlike Mickey Spillane's um, protagonist. It's been a while since so. I've seen any of the five, in fact. But yeah, there is this sort of generalized, uh, generalized other, uh, the the creeps, the freaks, right? Uh, it's not sort of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah the, the due process pursuit of particular suspects, but something, something more, uh, something broader, more diffuse, more uh, fearful than that. Um, yeah, I, uh, no, I was just going to say it is, it is very. Even though the attackers, the original attackers are um, white, um, it becomes very racialized in his uh, sort of cleaning up of the city. And he faces no consequence other than being asked to leave the city. So he doesn't face justice because he becomes celebrated as a hero uh, to uh, citizens of New York. All right. Well, in the the final chapter, um, you bring in quite a number of, other films from the later 70s into the 80s. Um, you also take us towards, um, take us into what you describe um, as the age of appropriation. You, 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 you discuss the lure of decay and certain ways in which these uh, once threatening, once uh, uh, repellent perhaps images of the city end up becoming their own kind of attraction, their own kind of uh, commodity in a certain way. Uh, pitch battles over questions of uh, graffiti in 1970s and 1980s are remarkably intense. Um, figures like Nathan Glazer end up having quite a bit to say on this topic. Um, in the interest of time, I think we uh, can't necessarily do that chapter uh, justice, but it does open on to the epilogue and I think the uh, the broader through line of the the book. I mean, you very compellingly trace the persistence and the mutation 
and the uh, stubborn recurrence of um, this set of ideas about the dying or dead or nearly dead uh, city across really quite an Im impressive uh, range of discursive domains and historical periods. Um, so in, in closing and kind of wrapping up here, um, I wonder if you could um, think a little bit about the extent to which this image is still with us today. Um, wh wh whatever, uh, whatever is the um, first year of the contemporary moment, the 21st century or, or thereabouts, is this still utterly present in the, in the same form as before, or is this underlying punch and set of fears um, still in mutation? Mm -hmm. um, it, well, it's certainly in mutation, and I think uh, the the categories, um, well, certainly the prevalence of the categories and the strength of the categories, um, certainly go under or undertake a shift in the 1980s and 1990s, and that's a lot of them. Um, the, the final chapter is about it really, the, this narrative starts changing and it has to do because of uh, people recognize what's hap what happened in the city in the vacuum left by the wake of, of, of this narrative decline. But um, I suspect the image of the city of Necropolis is still, I mean, as my own personal experience uh, relates, I mean, I still think, you know, for people who aren't familiar with uh, places like New York, uh, there's still this image of a kind of hostile, dangerous place and um, and whatnot. But it, it really, uh, the image of Cosmopolis has, has won out in, in many respects. Um, this The city is growing faster than it's ever grown and it's it's larger than it's ever been um it is tied to a significant um growth in standard of living and and sort of median income uh, at this time um and uh development is occurring as well as sort of contingencies like uh, display displacement and gentrification in a lot of neighborhoods that uh, would be unheard of um, in not just the 1970s and 1980s, but also in the, in the early 2000s when I first moved there. So in that sense, and the city continues to attract in the, in the spirit of white uh, uh, significant migrants and immigrants from all over the world. Um, with that, that said, <laughs> Whenever there's a kind of uptick in crime, you know, there's fears about New York falling into this, uh, falling towards the bad old days. And I also think, and I've talked about this elsewhere, there is this image, um, a very powerful concern with a lot of longtime residents and citizens in New York that uh, the city has has been so successful in attracting um, sort of upper 
class migrants and immigrants and investors that it just has displaced um, the sort of vibrancy and allure of New York City um, as a result in a lot of vacancies at the retail at street level um, sort of quote unquote authentic places have been priced out and displaced and in that sense um, something uh, a significant part of New York is dying uh, or, or lost in that in that uh, wave of development and I find that a very powerful and uh, convincing argument in that respect. But I do think the image of Necropolis as a whole has been, has, has shifted to um, other places uh, at the urban level. Certainly Chicago is going through a, a sort of discouraged Necropolis uh, period under the, under, uh, I mean, since uh President Trump has seized on on that city as uh, as a kind of whistle, and certainly rural communities as well um, are perceived to be hollowing out or dying, and um, and I sort of witnessed that firsthand since I live in a in, in a smaller city in a rural region. Uh, but I I guess I would conclude by saying um, it gives me hope that. Uh, that isn't that fit, that fate isn't necessarily foretold given the experience of cities in the era of the urban crisis where um, they were sort of written off and um, sort of left for dead so. well having 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 published yeah. the book um, you've probably had some some time to uh, formulate and uh, move in the direction of uh, something else can I ask you what your uh, working on now, is there is there another uh, book project in gestation? Well, I would say a, a book project in gestation. Um, yeah, I, I have had other responsibilities that have prevented me from digging deep into a new book project. But I, I am working on a book chapter related to representations of violence in 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 cities um, as a whole, which is, is a nice escape from New York because I can talk about other places where where um, these representations occur. Uh, in the future, I, I mean, I, I want to stick around in kind of cultural history and, and development and urban history, and I have a sort of a seeds of a project that I'm thinking about in sports culture and, and, and development. So um, that's a literature I look forward to acquainting myself with in the near future. Sounds great. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's – go uh, ahead. No, no, no. Uh, go, go on. Oh, I was just going to say that that is in the early stages and um, it's something I've been thinking about uh, while I was putting together this book. So, Great. I look forward to yeah, probably several years, <laughs> several years down the line. I'm willing to wait. Hope, um, hope. Look forward to seeing okay. what comes of that. Um, well, we've been we've been talking with uh, Brian Tochterman here, the uh, the author of The Dying City, Postwar New York and the Ideology of Fear. This is a book that came out just last year, 2017, with the University of North Carolina Press. I had a great time reading it. Um, Brian has been very generous with his time, and thanks so much for doing this. 
Thank you, Peter, and thanks for reading the book, and uh, I appreciate your analysis of it. Uh, it's obviously uh, comprehensive, and you spent a lot of time thinking about it, So, and I'm happy to talk about it. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot.